You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi there and welcome. So glad that you are here with us today at Mosaic Church. If you're just joining us, we are in week two of something called What's After ATX, where we are joining hundreds of other churches around the Austin area to to take a look at what Jesus and the first people who followed him had to say about the life that is to come, about life after death. And we're doing that through the lens of near-death experiences. Now, if you wonder why I didn't just say, well, we're taking a look at what the Bible says, it's because it's way better than that. Because those first people who who wrote those letters and the stories, they didn't know they were writing the Bible. All they knew is that they were writing down what they had heard. They were writing down what they had experienced. And best of all, they were writing down what they saw. Because what they had heard was a man predict that he would die and then rise again. What they experienced was actually the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And what they saw was that man, Jesus of Nazareth, die and rise again. And if a person repeatedly predicts their own death and resurrection and then it happens, I think I'll take my cue on what the life to come is like from him. Because let's just face it, we don't know. We don't know on our own what the life to come will be like. But what is amazing is that not only is that part of what Jesus came to kick the door open to for us is the life to come, but what's also amazing is that millions of people who have experience in DEs confirm what he said it would be like. So today we're going to be looking at one specific intersection between the teachings of Jesus and what NDEers report. Today, we are looking at relationships in heaven. Relationships in heaven, if you wanted to boil it all down today, if you wanted to put it all in a nutshell, if you wanted to summarize the teachings of Jesus on this topic, here's what it would be. That nothing and no one we love here will be lost there. Nothing and no one we love here will be lost there. Let me try to show you what I mean. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took his disciples into an upper room. You may know the story. And he said this in Luke chapter 22. He said, and he said, it says, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So he's telling them that in the life to come, there will be a meal. They'll be eating and drinking. Why? Because as we looked at last week, in the life to come, we will still have a body. It'll be a new body, a different body, but a body will still have. There's eating, there's drinking. And then Jesus went even further than this. At one point, one of his teachings, he compared the life to come to a kind of a party, to a wedding party. Look at what he, he teaches in Matthew chapter 22. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
So Jesus, he's saying there'll be all kinds of people in the life to come. The good and the bad, even people from churches will be there. The, the only commonality of people in heaven is that they said yes to the invitation of the king. Jesus is showing that God has opened heaven to people from all backgrounds, all faith backgrounds, nations, languages, uh, skin colors. They're all welcome. They're all given an invitation. But the thing about an invitation, and you know this, is that you have to respond to it. And we see him say right here in this parable that some, maybe even a lot of people, reject his invitation to his forever wedding party. But you think, well, why would someone do that? Why would you say no? Why would you reject this invitation? You know, you hear a lot of people say, I've heard it said before that people say, you know, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. In other words, I'd rather party in hell than be bored in heaven. Oh, but that, that makes as much sense as saying, I'd rather eat the steaks from 7-Eleven rather than eat the gas station hot dogs at Fleming Steakhouse. Let me tell you, 7-Eleven doesn't serve steak, and Fleming Steakhouse won't serve you a hot dog that's been sitting on a warmer since 7 a.m. yesterday. It only gives you the good stuff. So Jesus regularly tells you, no, 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 heaven is where the party is. There's food, drink, dancing, music, laughter, amazing clothes. It's only the best of this life. It will be a feast. That other place... Uh, hell, we'll look at it a little bit in a few weeks to come. It's never described like that. But maybe, maybe best of all, the people you love who have said yes to that invitation, they'll be there too. You know, Carrie, uh, she's repeatedly, my wife Carrie, has repeatedly said over the years to me, I don't know if I want to talk about heaven. don't know if I want to think about heaven because, Morgan, you know, I love you, and we won't be married in heaven, and that made her sad. And that's always kind of nice for me and her husband to hear, you know, versus like, Morgan, you mean we won't have to be married anymore in heaven? Like, you know, it's all in the tone, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, But she got this idea from another moment right after this teaching of Jesus, when Jesus taught, that heaven is like a party with him at the center that you're invited to. There was a, a group of people called the Sadducees. They were skeptical, like you may be skeptical. Uh, and so they asked Jesus their best like bumper sticker, 160 characters in a take that kind of tweet kind of question. And they asked Jesus this. They said, Jesus, all right. Let's say that a man marries a woman and then he dies. Then she remarries his brother. Then the brother dies. Then there's seven of these brothers. They all die. She remarries each time. Jesus, in the life to come, whose wife will she be? I'm thinking of like a little kind of a mic drop moment on Jesus there. But why did the Sadducees ask this question? Well, it's because they didn't understand heaven, so they were sad, you see. Sorry, Sadducee is terrible. It's an old joke, bad joke. I'm sorry. But they were asking a kind of a George Strait kind of a question. I'm not a big country music fan, but I did grow up listening to George Strait, who sang that all my exes live in Texas. And this question is sort of the twisted afterlife version of that country song. Jesus are asking, will all her dead exes live in heaven? And do you know what Jesus says back to them? He says, basically, all y'all are ridiculous. Here's what he says. You're in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels 
in heaven. But notice Jesus did not say that you would not be with your spouse, not be with your children, not be with your loved ones or family. He never said you wouldn't know your family there. As a matter of fact, over in another parable he teaches on the life to come about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man who's in hell in the parable. He knows his family. He's completely aware of, he's thinking about his family while he's there in that life to come. And most of all, most of all, I'll say this, if God has promised that the life to come will be greater in every way than the life we know now. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that what we may lose in a moment here will gain for an eternity there, then why wouldn't our relationships in heaven be greater and more meaningful and deeper somehow? Listen, we will know each other there. We will love each other there. We will hold each other there, but in a way that transcends and heals our limitations now. But don't take it from me. Don't take it from me. Uh, Four-year-old Colton Burpo, he he had a brush with death and he had a near-death experience. He claimed to visit heaven. And after he, he came back, after his experience, he went to his family one day and he had a surprise for them. He went up to his mother and he said this. He said, Mommy, I have two sisters. Mommy, I have two sisters. No, his mother, Sanja, corrected him, reminding him that he only had one, but he insisted. She asked him, well, are you sure you're not thinking about your cousin, Tracy? You know, she's a girl too. And he said, no, I have two sisters. He said, you had a baby die in your tummy, didn't you? And of course, time stopped for Todd and Sanja in the Burpo household at that moment. And Sanja asked him, well, who had told him that she had a baby die in her tummy? Little four-year-old Colton said, she did, Mommy. She said that she died in your tummy. And Todd and Sanja began to weep, and they began to ask him how he, had, he could know this because they never told their four-year-old little boy this. And Colton said, it's okay, Mommy. God adopted her. And through tears, they asked him what she looked like, and Colton said, well, it was a girl who had, it looked a little bit like his sister, but it had darker hair, and she had come up and hugged him, hugged him, but he didn't kind of like it because it was a girl hugging him. But they asked him, what her name was. Colton says, she doesn't have a name. You guys didn't name her. You're right, Sanja said. We didn't even know she was a she. And Colton said this, yeah. (laughs) She said, she just can't wait for you and daddy to get to heaven. Can you see why Jesus said to those skeptics, they didn't understand heaven because they didn't understand what the power of God, the power of his love was like. See, in the life to come, nothing and no one that you've lost here will be lost there. So what will then? What will people and relationships in heaven look like? Well, let me try to give you now four quick commonalities, what relationships will be like in the life to come. First, someone named Marv Besteman was a banker. He had an NDE and he came to a barrier. Many NDEers report coming to a barrier. It was crystalline. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it should. Uh, But 60 yards inside and waiting to meet him and waving to him, were his grandparents. Here's what he said, quote, both of them were wearing clothing similar to what they wore on earth and they appeared to be the age they were when they died. Still, grandma and grandpa looked like no other 85-year-olds I have ever seen walking around here. I kid you not. Had I thrown a football pass at them, both of them gave the impression they could have easily jumped up and snatched it. Now, that's, <laughs> that's what you call 
old man strength. Some of you are saying, I'm going to get me some of that. Yeah, I hope you will. I hope you do. Now, but the, the point is their age is irrelevant. There is ageless age in the life to come. People somehow exist in their primes. And second, Second, uh, a boy named Brian was 10 years old. Uh, he was born deaf and he, was, he nearly died in a drowning accident. And during his NDE, here's what he said happened to him. Quote, I approached the boundary. No explanation was necessary for me to understand at the age of 10 that once I crossed the boundary, I could never come back, period. I was more than thrilled to cross. I intended to cross, but my ancestors across another boundary caught my attention. They were talking and telepathy, which caught my attention. I was born completely deaf and had all hearing family members, all of which knew sign language. I could read or communicate with about 20 ancestors of mine and others through telepathic methods. It overwhelmed me. I could not believe how many people I could telepathize with simultaneously. What Brian is describing is what many NDEers consistently describe, that we do sing with our voices. We do communicate verbally at times. We do use that and sing. No, but communication is perfect and nonverbal. In other words, communication is heart to heart in the life to come. No more masks, <laughs> literal or figurative. Uh, no more playing games. No more translation. No, we just know. Maybe this is part of what Paul the Apostle was talking about when he says, one day we will fully know even as we are fully known. There is ageless age. There's heart-to-heart -heart communication. And third, as airline pilot Dale Black put it like this, uh, he was an airline pilot. His plane crashed. His two co-pilots perished in the crash. He had an NDE, and here's what he said. He said, part of the joy I was experiencing was not only the presence of everything wonderful, but the absence of everything terrible. There was no strife, no competition, no sarcasm, no betrayal, no deception, no lies. The absence of sin was something you could feel. There was no shame because there was nothing to be ashamed of. There was no sadness because there was nothing to be sad about. There was no need to hide because there was nothing to hide from. It was all out in the open. See, what he's talking about is that there is perfect relational unity in the life to come. There's perfect age, perfect communication, perfect connection, perfect unity because there's no evil in heaven. And because of all of this, there is now, finally, this fourth, perhaps greatest gift of all in the life to come. There is the human family restored. Someone by the name of Jeff Olson was a married father of two, and he, he was in a terrible car crash. His wife died, his oldest child died, and he was left as a single parent of a four-year-old, and he, he struggled to let his wife and his son go. He, he wrestled between desiring to go and die and be with them in heaven and the knowledge that he was still needed here to raise his son here. And at a low point, he actually had an NDE, and he was taken to heaven for this unexpected Reunion. He put it like this. He says, as I walked there on two strong, healthy legs, I entered into a long hallway and at the end of the hallway was a baby crib. I rushed to the crib and peeking in, saw something beyond joyful. It was little Griffin. He was alive and well, he slept so peacefully. I looked at him and took in every detail. I held him close and cried tears of joy as I laid my cheek against his soft little head as we had always done. I felt something or someone move up behind me. The feeling coming from this being was so powerful and yet so living that it almost startled me. 
I felt light and love engulf me. I knew my wife and son were, were gone. They had died earlier, but time didn't exist where I was at that moment. Rather than having them ripped away from me, I was being given the opportunity to hand them over to God, to let them go in peace, love, and gratitude. I held my baby son as God himself held me. I willingly gave my son up. No one would ever take him away from me again. See, nothing that we love and no one we love in this life is ever lost. Now, at this point, I hope the question you're asking is this, well, why? Why is heaven like this? Why is heaven, here's my question, why is heaven so relational? Why is heaven so relational? Well, here's why, and here's what I want to try to communicate to you today right now. Heaven is relational because God is relational. Heaven is relational because God is relational. If there were, if there were a central theme to the whole Bible, I think it might be this. The central theme might be this, that, that God wants a loving relationship with you. That God is motivated by love. He wants a loving relationship with you, every person created the loving relationship motivates God. Christians uh, always believe that the, the God of the Bible himself is a loving relationship. Father, Son, Spirit, we call it the Trinity. But love, true love requires some true things, true risk, true freedom, true choice. That means God to love truly would also have to subject himself to these things, to ride the same roller coaster ride that true love subjects Every person to the roller coaster ride, heartbreak, risk, rejection. Now, some of you, you're watching this, you're saying, man, all this, all this relationship of love stuff, it sounds great, but there, there's no way that the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the, the same God because uh, the God of the Old Testament could never have been a God of love. That, 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 that God was judgmental. He, he was condemning. Oh, that, but the God that's depicted in the NDEs, he's the compassionate one. The God of the New Testament sounds about like that. But let me try to show you why neither characterization is true and why you should actually want the God of the whole Bible to be the God of your whole life and your whole heart. For a moment, let's try to trace, let's try to outline the relational heart of God. If you listen to God speaking, through the Hebrew prophets, you hear him use every relational metaphor to get people's attention. He, he said this in, the, in Jeremiah, book of Jeremiah. He said, quote, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Is not Ephraim, it's a word for Israel, name for Israel, my dear son, the child in whom I delight, though I often speak against him, I still Remember him, therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. I looked forward to your calling me father, and I wanted you never to turn from me, but you have been unfaithful to me. Now, now do you do you hear it? It's the same heart beating here that beats in the heart of the father of the prodigal son in the popular parable Jesus told us the same broken heart of a father who just wants his child to come home. 
another Hebrew prophet named Zephaniah. It's not as popular as an American boy name now or this year or maybe ever, but nonetheless, Zephaniah shows us a God who likens himself to a love-struck groom who's singing over his bride at their wedding. Look at this, Zephaniah 3. He says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you and his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Now, imagine if that were really true, and I believe it is. I mean, imagine if every love song ever written is but a dim hint of the kind of love and affection that this God wants to pour into your heart. And now imagine how you would feel if the one you love the most, your own spouse, was unfaithful to you and chose the arms of another over you. God says that's how he feels when the people that he loves are unfaithful to him. Look at what he says to one, at one point to the children of Israel. He says also in Jeremiah 3, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. He's saying, be honest. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. Again, can you hear, can you hear the heart of God? And can you hear the heartbreak in the voice of God? Can you hear what it does to him when those that he loves move away from him, when they love any kind of any idol in his place? Now, now some Christians, some Christians struggle with what NDEs tell us and show us because they question, they question why God would bring someone who has overtly rejected him in this life, who is overtly rejecting him right now, why? he would bring a person like that to the border of heaven and show them only love, compassion, mercy. Oh, but they forget. And if this is you, perhaps you've forgotten that God's heart, we just saw it, is to bring every lost child home. And they forget that God will do everything in his power to get a person back. I mean, didn't he send Jonah to Nineveh to rescue a whole lost culture and city? And didn't he reveal himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, someone who is actively persecuting him. Oh, he did that, and they forget that God himself, the God of the Old Testament, is the one who said that one day somehow he would come, he would enter into our suffering to restore us, to get us back, to bring us home. That's the heart of the God the Bible, a father who wants his child back, a lover who sings to his bride, a husband who wants even the spouse who's been unfaithful to him just to come home. This is what indie ears describe when they taste the life to come. They describe a being of love and light who extends them compassion. And the fact that so many indie ears describe this compassion instead of judgment well, it also causes some researchers and skeptics to say again, this can't be the God of the Bible. But maybe, maybe, like those Sadducees, those who say that, if you say that, like Jesus said, it's not just because you don't understand the power of God. Perhaps it's because you don't know the scriptures. You don't know that the same Jesus who said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone is the same Jesus who said, I and the Father are one. I am what God is like. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The God of the whole Bible is a God of love. And yet, at the same time, this being of light and love that so many indie ears encounter 
is also a being of divine judgment. The same Jesus, as we saw last week, we'll see in full in a few weeks, the same being of compassion routinely gives a life review, a moment of personal judgment to those who encounter him and their experience. In his presence, they say, every good and bad thing is revealed. They're shown the ripple effects of every choice they make, how it's hurt every single person in their life, all they've done, all they've said, all they've looked at, all their selfishness, cruelty down to the motivational level is shown them. They are not spared. Feelings of guilt, shame, cosmic, infinite pain and regret. What a being of only compassion subject a person to something like that. And yet, what those who are given a life review say is that this being stands with them the entire time. They can tell he does not desire to condemn, but to save. And they love. They say they feel from him enables them to endure Why? Why is this? Here it is. It's because if you wanted to put the whole Bible in one verse, here it is. John 3, 17, when Jesus said, For God did not send his own Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is amazing. This is amazing. And yet it gets even better because this is all, not all that John wrote right here because the next two words of this same verse show us how the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same being. And the next two words show us how the judgment that we all deserve for our selfishness and our sin can be swallowed up by the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus of Nazareth. John wrote that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. How? Here it is. But to save it, Jesus said, through him. Oh, that is that God saves us through someone getting what we deserve, judgment, so that we can now get what he deserves, Perfect acceptance, perfect love. God wants to save the world, save you through him, Jesus of Nazareth. God wants you to know him. He is not far from you today. If you would but reach out, find him, ask for him, seek him. My friend, uh, John Burke, who wrote the book, Imagine Heaven, shares this incredible true story about his friend, an Indian man named Jaya. Jai is, again, from India, where his grandfather was the local, local guru of his village. And every year, during a special festival, his grandfather would set out food in their home and then leave if, if the food was gone when the family came back. That meant that the, the gods had been there, and therefore, a special blessing would be on that house. And at the age of 12, Jai decided to hide in the house to see what the gods looked like. But to his surprise, he saw only rats who came. And ate the food. And when Jaya told his grandfather that it wasn't the gods who ate the food, but it was the rats, his grandfather became angry and said that the, that the gods had become rats out of mercy to protect Jaya. But of course, it didn't satisfy the boy. He wanted to know if the Hindu gods were real. So he broke, he said, into his grandfather's locked chest that contained some of the earliest Hindu scriptures called the Rig Veda. And he, he read about the God of light, the creator of all who came to earth as the Purush Prajapati, uh, the Lord of all creation who became human and who sacrificed himself so that people could escape the endless crushing cycle 
of karma, and incredibly, is symbolized in those scriptures by a spotless lamb. Something inside Jaya made him want to know, to encounter this God of light. And so he asked his Hindu priest about him. And the Hindu priest told him that if he wanted to see this God of light, that he had to bathe every night in the, in the Krishna River uh, for a hundred nights and chant a special mantra a hundred thousand times. And then that God of light would appear. And so Jaya did it. He got into that uh, dirty Krishna River there a uh, hundred nights and chanted a hundred thousand mantras, but no one appeared. And at age 16, a few years later, a holy man passing through his village came to stay with his family. And Jaya again asked him about this God of light. And the guru told him he would take him to a special Hindu high priest, someone 800 miles away who said that he knew the God of light. And so Jaya ran away with him, desperate to know. And halfway through the trip, the holy man vanished along with all of Jaya's possessions and money. He was kicked off the train he was on for not having a ticket. And, and so broken by the disappointment, all the lies, and too ashamed to go home, Jaya decided he would end his life. He laid his body across a train track and he prayed a final prayer. He prayed, God of light, if you reveal, if you're real, reveal yourself to me now, for I'm about to take and end my life. Now listen, I would never advise anyone to do this. As a matter of fact, if you're thinking any kind of thought like that today, please stop. You do not have the right to take your life or anyone else's life. But but I would advise everyone, all of us, to be this desperate to find out the truth, who God really is. And Jaya said he can't explain exactly what happened next, but he said a bright light began to approach him, which at first he thought was the train. But as it got closer, the light became brighter than any light he had ever seen. And a voice came from the light and said, Jaya, called him by name, Jaya, I am the God you are seeking. I am the God of light. And my name is Jesus. Jaya came to faith in Jesus, the God of light, before he'd ever met a single Christian, before he'd ever read the Bible, before he'd ever set foot in a church, not only because God had mercy on him, which he did, but because Jaya sought him with his whole, whole heart. And for the last 30 years now, he and his wife have served the poorest, the poor in India. They've started an orphanage, rescued victims of self-trafficking, built a hospital for those with health care needs who couldn't afford it. Otherwise, see, God's promise is that all who seek him with their whole heart will find him. Why is heaven relational? It's because God is relational and he wants to bring even a little bit of heaven right now into your heart and one day wants to bring you to meet him face to face. It just begins by praying something like this and you can pray this right where you are right now. You can pray this, say, Jesus, I want what you did to count for me. Jesus, I want what you did to count for me. I want the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for my sins. And I want the leadership of Jesus Christ in my life. You can just pray, God, would you receive me now and one day for an eternity because of what Jesus did. Now, if you prayed that prayer, listen, you, we want to follow up with you, help you in this journey. You can just text this number. It's going to be on your screen, and we will follow up and take it from there with you. But let me just take a moment and pray for you and for us right now. Lord, I, I, we, just, we come to you. We thank you for this truth, for what Jai experienced, what so many of us experienced, that you are 
this God of light and love. And that you desire not to condemn, but to save us through you because of what you've done. And Lord, I'm praying for us today. If we never had before, we would call out to you, cry out to you. We would experience permanent and forever kind of transformation because of your great love. You promised to do that for us. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.